Well, the kids have been sick with the flu. At work, there have been some very tough deadlines to meet and a lot of stress and a lot of trouble going on. The house, at the house, there's a, there's a list of chores as long as your arm that you've been needing to get to and you just haven't been able to find a time to get all of that done. And, and then with your family, your extended family, there's responsibilities and obligations that you need to try to meet. And boy, you could just almost throw up your hands being overwhelmed with all these things that need to be accomplished. And uh, what's a person to do anyway? with all of these things pressing down. It can be quite overwhelming. Well, as you think about that, that's, that does, that's not an impossible scenario to grasp, is it? We get so many things going on and so many pressures and things to deal with that we can feel quite overwhelmed. That happens in our physical life, but let me tell you that that can also happen in our spiritual life as well. It's possible to be overcome, overwhelmed with the, the challenges and the temptations of living as we should as Christians. Uh, there's burdens and there's trials that we have to bear. Uh, certainly we might ask the question, in times like these, what's a Christian supposed to do? What's a Christian to do living in times like these? When there are these various factors that sometimes can add up to be overwhelming in nature. What are we supposed to do? These are not easy times. These are difficult times. And in times like these, what's a Christian to do? I want to suggest to you for our study this morning the text that Mark read for us a few moments ago from 1 Peter chapter 4. If you want to turn your Bibles there, we'll be spending our time in that text this morning looking at some suggestions that the Apostle Paul offered to Christians who were dealing with things a lot more difficult than ours. I'm not saying that ours are easy times, I think these are difficult times, but I don't believe that our times compare at all with those of those first century Christians. They truly were in very tough times, and Peter, by inspiration, I think, gave them some instructions to follow in their case that are also applicable to ours. So we'll be studying that text this morning. Before we begin to look at that text more uh, particularly, let us stop for a minute to thank everyone for being present here today. Uh, it's good that in such times as these, you see a value to coming together for worship, and we commend you for that. And glad that we have the opportunity to be together, to study from God's Word, and to join together to offer praise and glory to our Creator. Uh, thank you for being here to be a part of this this morning. We have visitors, as we typically do, and we're very glad for you who are visiting with us. We hope that you would accept our sincere invitation to come back every time that you have an opportunity to be here. And also, no, please know that we are open to your questions. We'd be glad to sit down and study the Bible with you on any Bible subject. If you have questions and we can help with Bible study, or if we can explain what we're doing here at College View and why, you just say a word and we'd be glad to study with you. Thanks for being here this morning. So what's a Christian supposed to do living in times like these? Well, I think Peter gives us some good advice. He was talking to those folks, and their case was tough. Tougher than ours, I really believe. But ours are tough times. What would he suggest? Notice in this text several things. In 1 Peter 4, beginning verse 7, the first thing he says is, the end of all things is at hand. And so from that, we could draw the point that we need to be always ready for the end. We need to be living in anticipation of the fact that the Lord could return. The end of all things is at hand. Now, 
seems like whenever we talk about the end of time, we have to spend a good bit of our energy denying those who make predictions. The end is going to happen, and they try to set a date, and they try to tell us that it's all going to transpire real soon, and we, you know, they're looking at specific things that they think that indicate that the time is right now. And so we have to spend a good bit of energy saying the Bible does not give us the opportunity to pinpoint the time of the Lord's coming. Uh, there have been so many false predictions throughout the centuries that you can't hardly even document them all. And all, all of them are, are in error because the Scripture plainly tells us that the Lord's coming will be, as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, that His coming will be as a thief in the night. Well, how does a thief come in the night? He doesn't announce himself. He doesn't call you up ahead of time, tell you he's coming. The element of surprise is what the thief has working in his favor, right? Well, Jesus says his coming will be as a thief in the night. Therefore, that being the case, we couldn't predict it if we wanted to. But having said that, and again, I think we have to spend, uh, unfortunately, we have to spend so much of our emphasis on saying you can't predict the end that maybe we don't pay attention to the fact that the end is coming. And throughout the Scriptures, we're told to be ready for it, in anticipation of it. Someone made a point recently that, that I came across that I hadn't considered before. You know, at various times through history, you could have said with certainty, it can't happen yet, because there are things that have to happen before it can happen. Uh, for instance, in all of the time of the Old Testament, you know, you, you could say, well, the, the world couldn't come to end yet because God hasn't prom fulfilled His promise about the Messiah coming and so forth, about the establishment of His uh, uh, spiritual kingdom and so forth. Uh, so lots of times throughout the history of mankind on earth, you could have said, well, it can't be yet. I mean, it, it, it definitely couldn't come yet. But as far as I'm aware, there's nothing in the Bible that we're waiting to happen that would prevent the Lord's return and the end of the world. In other words, there's nothing that says it couldn't happen right now or this afternoon or tomorrow or this week. It could happen real soon. Now, we're not saying it's going to happen real soon. We're not going to join in with the false predictors who think that they know when it's coming because we don't know when it's coming. But what we, is saying, what we are saying is there's nothing that would prevent it from happening at any point now. And therefore, we need to be always ready. You're living in tough times. What do you do? You stay ready for the Lord's return and ultimate judgment. That just makes sense, right? And so we would do that. Be living with the realization, the fact that, bottom line, that's all that matters. Nothing, when you boil everything down, nothing else compares at all to the fact that we need to be ready for the Lord's return, judgment, and eternity. Also, in that seventh verse, notice he says, therefore be of sound judgment. And so a second point that Peter mentions is that we should maintain sound judgment. Uh, the, the words there in the original language literally suggest the idea of keep a clean mind. Keep a clean mind. And I think it's accurately translated, be of sound judgment. But the idea of a clean mind is sort of helpful in understanding that. Um, a clean mind would be one that's not polluted. What would your mind become polluted with? Well, your mind might become polluted with the values of the world that we're living in. Uh, there are a lot of dangerous worldly influences around us, and we need to keep them out and not let them pollute our mind and change our thinking. 
The world is trying to get us to act like they act, to talk like they talk, to dress like they dress, and do the things that they do. And it's very easy because there are so many ways that that can influence our thinking and change what we what we value as our norms. We got to, perhaps more than ever before, we have got to work at keeping our minds clean, and therefore maintaining sound judgment in choosing uh, what we will do. Uh, there's a great danger in our world. Therefore, work hard to maintain sound judgments by keeping your mind clear of the polluted values of this world. He also says that we should be of sober spirit. Now, this is the New American Standard Version here. He uses the word sober. Obviously, when we think sober, that word now means almost exclusively to be free from the influence of alcohol. Be sober. Don't be drunk with alcohol. But the word literally means self-controlled. Obviously, if you're sober, you're controlling yourself about alcohol, but this is a broader term suggesting that we control ourselves, be uh, under self-control about all things. If you stop to think about it, and again, we're talking about our times. What are we supposed to do while we're living in times like these? In our times, I think that the average person has access uh, more than ever to things that can make him lose control. Think about that for a minute. Back in Bible times, what might you use, what kind of substance or influence might might prevail to cause you to lose control? Uh, then compare what they had access to to what we have access to. I mean, there's a whole lot more things available to us that could cause us to lose our self-discipline and self-control. And therefore, there's, there's more need than ever for us to be very careful. Stay under control. Again, the, the idea of sound judgment and sober spirit go together. But in these times that we're living in, we've got to be careful to keep our minds pure and clean and maintain self-discipline over ourselves in regard to all the things that the evil world is trying to get us to think and do. Uh, these are evil times. Work hard. I'm concerned that very often as Christians we just sort of stumble along as though we're unaware of the dangers that are around us. The dangers are everywhere. Keep your eyes open. Maintain sound judgment. Practice self-control. And then notice he says certainly engage in prayer. In times like these, it's certainly important for us to be busy in prayer. Um, you pray the most when the need is the greatest. Would you agree with that? If, if you feel like there's some particular great need in your life, don't you find it easier to engage in prayer? Well, if we perceive that these times are very evil, uh, then we should spend more time engaged in prayer. First Thessalonians 5.17 says, Pray without ceasing. Uh, James 5.16 promises us that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And we should certainly use uh, the avenue of prayer. How often do you pray in a given day? And then, how long are each of those prayers? If you would stop and add up the number of minutes that you spend in prayer every day, how, how, how many do you think they'd be? Well, I'd have to admit I don't think I pray enough, that I need to spend more time in prayer. Pray more often and pray longer when I do pray. Uh, and, and I would 
guess that many of you would probably agree with me in that analysis about your own practice of prayer. In evil times, when there are overwhelming challenges confronting us as Christians, one of the great privileges and tools that we have at our disposal is the tool of prayer. Prayer. Peter encouraged those Christians to pray. He would certainly encourage us to do the same. He goes on and says, Above all, keep fervent in your love one to another because love covers a multitude of sins. And so, love for one another is important in times like these. Unfortunately, we find situations where brethren don't manifest love for one another like they should. I think that's a really sad thing. You know, here we are living in this present world. We're under attack on all fronts. People really trying to, to, to get us to fall spiritually. And then, in, in the course of all that, Christians turn on one another. Uh, just this last week, I was engaged in a rather lengthy email exchange with a Christian, not a member here, not anymore, used to be. Uh, and uh, it was so sad. That, that individual was obviously just looking for every opportunity to pick and complain and gripe and criticize. Uh, it was quite disheartening. Here we are in a world that doesn't see things the way we see and, and, and tries to attack us on every front. And then we end up with our own brethren attacking us and trying to tear us down. How discouraging. In times like these, we need to be helping one another, holding up one another's hands and, and encouraging and strengthening one another. Uh, it just seems natural that in tough times we would draw together rather than turn on each other. We need to see each other as saying, what do you do? I might just ask you this question. What do you do if a situation develops in your physical family where there's a, a problem or an issue? Oh, uh, my son did something out of uh, ugly did something that he should have done. And so I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to turn on him. And, I, I, and I'm, just, I'm just going to be hateful and spiteful. I'm going to see if I can uh, do him more harm. Is that what I would do with my physical family? No, if, my physical, if, if, if one of my sons has, a, has an issue, I'm not going to turn on him. I'm going to go to him and try to help him, strengthen him, support him, uphold him. Right? You wouldn't turn on your physical family why are you turning on your spiritual family? That just doesn't really even make sense. But unfortunately, that happens all too often. And so, in tough times, what do you do? Is you manifest love for your brethren. And I think we can improve in that. And we can be helpful to each other when we do. Very much in line with that, the Apostle goes on to say, be hospitable, hospitable to one another without complaint. We've talked before about hospitality uh, and, and the importance of it. It's mentioned in the Scriptures, and it's something that we should do. As I've explained before, you know, I, I think sometimes people take a specific definition of Bible hospitality, meaning to entertain strangers. And we've talked before about the need for Christians in that time period to help others who were traveling on, at, to get to where they're going, give them safe places to stay and so forth, but we don't need that anymore, people argue. We don't live under the times when staying in public inns and, and facilities such as that were dangerous places to be. We don't live like that anymore. Uh, and so we don't have to worry about being hospitable anymore. I, I, I really think that's a mistake. And I think of all the verses that talk about the need for hospitality, 
maybe this one is the one that most clearly says it's not just towards strangers that you show hospitality, but you show it to one another, which suggests that I should be hospitable certainly among those that I know, not just to strangers. Notice also that it says that you do that without complaint. Uh, it, it should not be the situation, well, I'm going to give some hospitality, but I wish I didn't have to, or I sure wish it wasn't necessary. I dread it, but I'll do it anyway because it says so. No. If we have this love for one another that he has instructed us to have, then we, we should be willing and anxious to show hospitality to one another. Developing those close relationships with each other is so vital. Uh, if we don't do that, we're not going to be able to be the help to each other in difficult times that we need to be. And I, I believe that's what's really behind these instructions in the Scripture. We need to have a close relationship. If you don't know me and I don't know you, then there's very little chance that we're going to be much help when crisis strikes. I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to share my most inner, most heartfelt troubles and concerns with someone that I don't, don't really even know. Uh, if, I, if I fall upon hard times and I need to talk to someone, I'm not going to go talk to a stranger. I'm going to talk to someone that I know, that I have confidence in, that have shown that they care about me. Now, don't you feel that way? Therefore, develop these relationships. It's tough times, man. It's tough times. What are you going to do in these tough times? Well, be sure to express your love for one another and specifically demonstrate it by hospitality. We've got to do that. That's a Bible command. It's not... That's not just a suggestion, but the apostle is telling us this is what we must do. He goes on to say in verse 10, As each one has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. What do you think he's talking about there when he talks about the special gift, a special gift? Well, some commentators think that he was talking about miraculous spiritual gifts there. And I actually think that he's not. Uh, the King James Version says the gift, as each one has received the gift. Well, here it says, as each one has received a special gift. Well, if this was talking about miraculous abilities of the Holy Spirit that many Christians of the first century did have, then uh, it would be different. We know, and by the way, you might reference here, we won't look it up, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 29, 1 Corinthians 12, 29 proves that not every Christian of the first century had miraculous gifts. But this says that each one has received a gift. But not everyone in the first century had miraculous gifts. So I don't think it can be talking about miraculous gifts. The King James says, as everyone has received the gift... You know what I think he's talking about there is the gift of salvation. He goes on to refer to us as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. God, by His grace, has given us the gift of salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. That being the case, what does the verse mean? The verse means that since you're blessed spiritually, you need to use those spiritual blessings. You use your spiritual blessings by teaching others, by encouraging others, by supporting others, by praying for others. Use your gift. You're in a relationship with God. You have salvation in Christ Jesus. Use that gift as a good steward and put it to good practice. It's very important in times like these to use your God-given abilities and the spiritual blessings that have been bestowed upon you to do good 
for others. Well, the text goes on. Verse 11, you may recognize verse 11 maybe more than any of these other verses because we often quote it. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. The King James speaks, says, speak as the oracles of God. Whoever serves, let him do it as by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here, uh, I would suggest to you that we're supposed to insist on doctrinal soundness. Real emphasis on the first part of that verse. Whoever speaks, let him speak, as it were, the utterances of God. I'm not telling you anything new when I tell you that a lot of folks religiously have compromised the truths of God's Word. Unfortunately, we find even our own brethren more and more who are willing to compromise, uh, to, to water down the message, to soften its impact on people, to make it easier. Uh, to make it more to human liking. And, uh, and so even among our own brethren, we're seeing many who are compromising the truth. They think that they have to do it in order to sort of keep up. You know, uh, if we're to keep up with many of the denominations, then we're going to have to make it, make it more appealing to people, make it easier to swallow, uh, you know, soften the message. Because if you preach the, the, the old... Jerusalem gospel, so to speak. People will be turned off by that. They're not going to come back. And if we're we're going to increase in numbers, we're going to have to make it easier to hear the message. Think about this setting again here. Here, Peter is writing to these Christians of the first century who are suffering real hardship. What do you say? Why don't you all back off a little bit? Tone it down because that will make it easier you'll be able you'll you'll be able to stand the pressures a little easier if you're not out there you know so much uh, and telling people that they're wrong and and condemning the evil practices and so forth water it down make it softer is that what he told them no he said you be sure that you insist on doctrinal soundness speak as the oracles of god speak as it were the ordinances of god or the utterances of god don't soften the message even in tough times we cannot do that i believe that's really important we need to insist on doctrinal soundness even in tough times we need to demand that preachers preach it we need to uh, uphold the hands of elders as, as they lead in that fashion and we need to encourage members uh in the matters of sound doctrine it's very important in tough times And then look at the end of the passage that we're looking at today. Just a couple more points and the lesson will be yours. But in verse 12 he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the suffering of Christ, keep on rejoicing. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief, an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers a Christian, let him not be ashamed. So what would we say? from that section. In these tough times, don't be surprised if you're persecuted. Don't be surprised. It's, if, if you run into some hardships that are caused by the fact that you're trying to live as a faithful Christian, why would you be surprised about that? Notice, don't be surprised at the, the fiery ordeal among you. What were you expecting anyway? Uh, why are you surprised that sometimes you're persecuted as a Christian? Christians have always been persecuted. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, 
Paul says, yea, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Don't be surprised at that. It's normal. But verse 13, he says, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. This is a thing even to rejoice in. In Acts chapter 5, when some of the apostles had suffered the first beatings that came their way because they were preaching Jesus Christ, really the very first persecution against Christians, the first physical persecution anyway, uh, it says, after they departed from the presence of the council that had ordered their beating, it says they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. They rejoiced in their sufferings. They were glad to be able to participate in those kind of things for the cause of Christ. And so, are you being persecuted to some degree? Rejoice in that. That's the right thing. That's the way it's supposed to be. He says, verse 14, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, blessed are you. That, that sort of reminds us of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in the so-called Beatitudes. Matthew 5, verse 10, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when, you, when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Jesus said to expect it and consider that you're in a blessed state. If you're living in such a fashion that men are willing to persecute you, then it's an indication that you are in good company with Christ himself. Certainly don't suffer, he says, as a murderer, a thief, evildoer, troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed. Don't be ashamed of that fact. If you are called upon to suffer for your faith, don't be ashamed of that. In Mark chapter 8, verse 38, Jesus said, Whoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me now, I'll be ashamed of you later. So, again, all of these several verses talk about the reality of persecution for faithful Christians. Don't be surprised when it comes. You ought to be anticipating it if you're living right. And finally, the very last phrase here, let him glorify God. In all uh, these things, let him glorify God. That's really a good place to end this analysis of these several verses. Because, really, that's what it's all about. Bringing glory to God. He's our Creator. Our purpose for existence. Our whole lives. The reason we're here is to bring glory to God. I I don't think that that should be such a difficult concept for us to grasp. Let's say that you are an inventor. You invent things. And so you have invented some mechanism here. So you're an inventor and you've invented this little machine to do something. When that machine, so some people gather around to see the machine that you've invented. When that machine does what you invented it to do, what's the reaction of the people who see it? They say, man, you're pretty smart. You figured that out yourself. You made that thing? Man, you're pretty smart. And so the invention brings glory to the one who invented it. On the other hand, though, You've made this little machine and you called some people together to see what it would do and so you turned it on and the thing just completely malfunctioned. It didn't do anything that it was supposed to do and then just collapsed and fell apart in pieces. All the people would say, that guy must not be too bright. <laughs> that thing he made doesn't even work. you know." So when the created thing does what the creator designed it to do, 
the created thing brings glory to the Creator. Think about that in application to God. He created us. Our purpose for existence is to bring glory to the One who created us. Are you doing that? Is that the purpose for your life? Do you understand that to be the reason why you're living here? Uh, if we can keep that perspective, I think it really helps us. As we're living with the immediate challenges of day-to-day life in these kinds of times, if we can remember that this is really only temporary, our purpose for existence here is to bring glory to our Creator, and ultimately we can be with Him throughout all eternity, if we can keep that view in mind, living in times like these, I believe will be very helpful. And so here are several verses that the Apostle Peter writes there by inspiration that I believe are directed toward Christians. Those Christians, as we pointed out time and again this morning in our lesson, those Christians were facing some real tough challenges. And Peter was telling them how to deal with that tough time. Well, it's still applicable today. And I believe if we will follow the advice of those verses, uh, we'll be much better off living in times like these. I hope our lesson has been helpful to those who are Christians. Those are the ones that we've been addressing specifically. If you're a Christian and you've let the times get the best of you, uh, you need to realize that uh, you've got to get back on track. And it's really the only and most important thing to be right with God. If you're uh, a Christian who's fallen away, please come back to Him in repentance, confession, and prayer. If you're not yet a Christian, you certainly need to make that decision to obey the simple gospel plan of salvation. Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized for the remission of sins. If we can help you in any way, let us know while we stand and sing this song.